You're listening to highlights from the creative process interview with Marcia DeSantis. This podcast is supported by the Ian Michalski Foundation. There's a photograph from my first visit to Morocco in which I appear as if on the floor of a canyon. Behind me is a cinematic backdrop, a towering pomegranate red clay mountainside speckled with clusters of trees. I'm standing on a wide open restaurant terrace wearing white capri pants and a black tank top, sneakers with socks. The wind blows my hair into chaos, but one hand pushes the bangs off my face. In the corner over my shoulder, there's a sliver of Matisse blue sky. I am 24 years old. A few hours from Marrakesh, I arrived at this place, wherever it was, to the staggering side of the mountains opening up beyond the valley. Then I heard my mother's voice. I'm just out of word, she said as her narrow foot swung lightly out of the car into the sunshine. Isn't it something? My mother documented that trip to Morocco as she did everything in her life, perfectly, painstakingly, with the observant eye of a woman who was born an artist, but in a time and place where it would never have occurred to her to actually be one. Me stroking a carpet or chatting with a merchant at the souk, my sandaled foot in the stirrup of each camel I rode. There were, I'm afraid, more than one. I had the cluster of mimosa branches that riffled beyond the hotel window. It was all preserved on film. Back at home, my mother's deft hands slid the photographs onto the pages of albums, which were left untouched for decades, like forgotten or overlooked monuments. The photos seemed to be brushed with a brownish glaze. Maybe it's the passage of time, but perhaps it was the grit from the Chirgui, the wind from the Sahara that blows west across the Atlas Mountains and through Marrakesh, Meknes, Wazazat, carrying fine particles of rust-colored sand. It was ferocious that year in the fall of 1985. The dust hung and thickened the air, but it was also invisible and may have left a film on the lens of my mother's camera, giving the snapshots a tawny cast that dimmed the brights of the morning and churn the milkiness of the clouds. The fine orange coating on my skin made it erupt with tiny hives upon arriving in Marrakesh. Some memories of that trip now seem as that they were filtered through a pleasant Benadryl haze. Even the novel I was reading poolside at the Hotel Mamunia, The Mists of Avalon, bears remnants of this dry desert wind. The paperback stands in my bookshelf, smudged with fingerprints, the color of dried blood on pages stippled from pool water that dripped from my hair and dried in the heat. My mother photographed that too, her youngest daughter asleep in her bikini, stretched out on a chaise under the prickly sun with a book resting on her stomach. I was actually writing for a long time, but I I really had my first big byline the year that I turned 50. I was still 49, but it was my 50th year. And I had begun to just write about these I wasn't traveling a lot. I had two youngish kids at home. I was stuck in the country. You've been to my house. There's not much to do here. And imagine it in the winter when you can't even get out of the driveway. The least kind way to say it is resting on my laurels is just taking these moments and these experiences and making a narrative out of them. I had a lot of them. And part of it was also reclaiming my past. I was a housewife. I was a full-time mother. I was teaching a little bit. I'd written a novel that I got an agent, but it didn't sell. I was kind of pecking away at an existence, honestly. 
and I was looking back at things that that were almost in disbelief and in such stark contrast to the life I was living now. And so, yes, I'm just this housewife and I'm in line, which is fine. I mean, I was in it fully, but I was also thinking, wow, I once was in the Prague Castle with the most important television journalist of her generation, Barbara Walters, who I worked for. And it was very hard to think that I was that same person. And so I, I started writing these smaller stories. It's hard to lose an identity. I had left New York City. I had moved to the country. I had given up my work. And I was kind of mourning the person I used to be. And it was interesting in many ways, at least to me, I wasn't really unhappily married at all. I was very, I mean, happily married. What does that even mean? We were very compatible, best friends, really love and respect each other, kind of no issues other than the usual ones, just like not doing enough around the house or me bugging him about not doing too much about that, sort of the normal things. But so this was a real inflection point in my life. He was supportive of me as a writer and as were my younger kids, like, mom, you've got to write the truth, which I thought was very selfless and very kind of them. And also one of the hardest thing to do when you're writing personal essay and memoir. But so this was very much the point. It was like the dividing time of my life. It was the dividing time between before I was a writer and after I was a writer. But in the context of travel, it was before this essay and before this story, I hadn't found a way to combine the things that I loved to do or the things that I could do along with the master's degree that I had received. So after that is really when I started traveling and traveling with a purpose and trying to get that geopolitical angle that I had gotten more interested in and gotten, I would say, a little expertise in, in getting this master's degree. So that area, and it was also when I realized that when I traveled and when I left this beautiful, safe, place called home, I was able to really appreciate what I had at home. So travel became a way to kind of quell my restlessness, but not quell it in the sense that I wanted it to go away, but quell it in a way that I could channel it into some, literally some professional way that I could leverage it. I mean, quell and leverage my restlessness into story. And then always very happy to walk back in the door and sort of be, ah, I'm okay. And the worst way that I could say it was travel was a way to self-medicate, was a way to deal with the major hormonal imbalance that happens, and to me, to an alarming degree in my late 40s, but also a way to take this restlessness and make something of it. And I started looking over the stories that I had done. I would say the majority of the essays were not really about travel. They were more, you know, they were about aging and marriage and memory and all of those things. But I did find that in the travel essays, those kernels of things that I wanted to explore, those bigger kernels of things that I wanted to, that were sort of scratching at me or itching at me from the inside like a piece of sand in my pocket that was irritating me, something that I wanted to explore. 
those tended to happen in the past. But what I found was that the theme of coming and going, the theme of arrivals and departures, the theme of entrances and exits, and the theme of home and away seemed to repeat itself. And I felt that whenever I was somewhere, there was always a tie to home. And when I was home, there was always the urge for going. And so I just weeded out and weeded out and weeded out and really wanted to keep this theme of home and away and at home, just thinking of Paris where I used to live or thinking of, you know, the adventure or the journey or the exploration I had recently had. And I did find that there were a lot of gaps, that there were a, a lot of gaps in the narrative. And I I ended up out of 140 or 150 essays, I ended up with only 26. And I realized that I had to write some more and that there were things that I had to include, such as what it's like to be on assignment and to be by yourself and to be traveling, but not on vacation, but to be traveling with a huge, wide open curiosity and with all five senses fired up and engaged entirely, but also, you know, working and working and working, but trying to feel that stillness when I'm away. So I tried to kind of fill in the blanks. And in some of them, I discovered that I wanted to sort of recognize that moment to be like as a fulcrum for the story, that home and away, but then this moment when I'm appreciating them both. I don't want this to sound too much like a therapy session, but I do feel that my generation, sort of the baby boomer generation, has not really acted responsibly, has left kind of a mess for my children's generation and subsequent generations. And I feel really bad about it. And sometimes I feel bad to the point of despondency. I think we all know that despondency doesn't get you anywhere. And I look upon a, a generation of engaged activists, people my kids' age, that whole generation really, really, really cares. And part of it is anger. And some of the conversations are heartbreaking, like, thanks, you did this. Why didn't you ever think that Roe versus Wade are abortion law? Like, why didn't you ever think that this was going to be under attack? How did you let this happen? And there is a lot of responsibility, but I do feel that the optimism, the commitment, the openness, and the level of care and concern of the younger generation is going to save us. I've already learned a lot from, let's say, my daughter and her friends, the questions they ask and the concerns they have. And so I will, you know, continue to be open to learning from the younger generation. And I think the second that you give up hope is the second that you have declared failure. And I think nobody wants to declare failure. People want to still have children and want to still go to beautiful places and want those places to be safe and clean. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.